Welcome to the TransAsia and the World podcast. I'm Galen Poor. I'm here today with my colleague Evan Wells to interview Shelley Chan about transnational history. Shelley Chan is an associate professor of history at UW-Madison and a historian of modern and global China, focusing on Chinese emigration and diaspora in the 19th and 20th centuries. Her book, Diaspora's Homeland, Modern China in the Age of Global Migration, was published this year by Duke University Press. So the first thing we want to talk about was just hear a little bit about your background. Mm -hmm. So could you start by talking about what initially drew you to the field of history? Mm, sure, yeah, I think mostly it's, um, you know, my undergrad experience. I, I think, you know, I was very drawn to storytelling and to me, history was uh, a mode of storytelling. And I was also majoring, so I was majoring in history, also majoring in political science. And uh, I think doing the two together allows me to understand, you know, what, you know, what are my true likes and dislikes. I mean, for political science, I really liked political theory and political philosophy, but I, I, I tended to, you know, kind of feel more inclined toward history. So I think that, um, you know, set me on a path of, you know, maybe thinking about being a professional historian. Yeah, what other topics and time periods were you first interested in? Um, I'm still primarily I'm a historian of the modern period. I think my teaching kind of forces me to widen my, uh, my knowledge base. Often it's very challenging to teach Chinese history on a kind of broad scale and so I, I you know here I think one of the the most uh, important challenges and then you know at UW-Madison was that my, my opportunity to teach a, a big China survey so I, I can't just stay comfortably in my own zone which is the modern period 1920 centuries but I actually have to try to to weave together a, a coherent narrative of China from the its very beginnings uh, how China uh, was defined uh, differently over time, and by far, I think that that experience had exposed me to many different, you know, kind of phenomena that was um, very broad in scope in Chinese history, from religion, philosophy to trade, and uh, so the, a lot of the pre-modern period history actually um, I find it to be really interesting, really relevant to my own work on transnational and global history in the modern period. So I see a lot of uh, connections. So this podcast is Trans-Asian in the World. We yeah. focus on transnational history. When did you first get interested in diaspora studies and these kind of transnational topics? Mm -hmm. um, well, my primary area of interest is migration and migrants. And so I'm interested in circulation of people and with it, uh, money, goods, ideas, texts even. So I, I'm interested in it everything that moves and sometimes when things don't move or people who don't move how they were somehow still connected to a history of movement so um so i i think a general interest in the mobility of things and people and ideas phenomena drew me to diaspora studies because the field itself is quite established with african diaspora or indian diaspora but I think in, for my own field of Chinese history, we have not yet ventured into thinking about what diaspora means in the Chinese experience. Mm -hmm. 
and um, to kind of bring East Asia into the conversation about diaspora studies when Chinese people were one of the greatest uh, migratory peoples in the world as well behind Europeans and behind Indians. And so I think we're, we're just touching upon it and trying mm. to borrow some conceptual ideas from diaspora studies about culture and identity to um, illuminate, you know, Chinese history. Yeah. Could you, so one thing we're interested in is when this transnational turn or perspective yeah. kind of entered into our field. Yeah. So could you say, was it like as an undergrad or mm -hmm. a graduate student that you first realized this was a, a thing mm -hmm. or a direction you could go or maybe mm -hmm. some books or mm -hmm. like teachers that influenced you or, mm -hmm. or led mm -hmm. you in this direction? Mm -hmm. I think, so I have had a general interest in kind of history of migrants and things on the move. And then I think I kind of, enter grad school um, in an interesting time also. I think that was, um, you know, there is this, you know, if you talk about transnational history and transnational turn and what are the genealogies of that, there are multiple. So I think the closest ones that are related to me is a bunch of, you know, social scientists in the 1990s studying, you know, immigration and globalization. And so they coined the term transnationalism Deterritorialization. Right? These are very multiple syllable words uh, that came into a, a general academic vocabulary uh, that looks at nations not as fixed and bounded things, but look at these um, immigrants and ethnic communities how they uh, actually live their lives. Right. So if they we stop putting them into these containers that we assume had always been there called nations, mm -hmm. that but follow their lives. Right, how they send money home, packages, um, how they go visit, return. If you actually follow the lives of these people, you know, you can call flexible citizens, or you can call, you know, if you look at, you know, kind of one of the foundational texts of, of the time was uh, Nations Unbound. Right? These are from um, cultural anthropologists, sociologists. Um, so they, 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 they kind of, you know, spark great interests beyond their own fields. So from the very beginning, it's an interdisciplinary kind of enterprise. And then you also have post-colonial subaltern studies people who are kind of invested in making visible the invisible, right? These, whether it's peasants, women, workers, right? You put them in the picture and, uh, and, and, and you follow them around, right? And see how they live mm -hmm. their lives. There's also cultural studies where we look at, you know, how culture was made through in circulation rather than in a kind of fixed static mode. So all of these combined, right, these are the more recent genealogies of the transnational turn. And I think historians are gradually were affected by that. You know, they try to incorporate these different questions they have not asked of their field before, different subjects, different geographies, chronologies, and they bring it to bear on kind of notions of history that they're already beginning to question, you know, master narratives of how history is linear, is um, going in one direction, and it's kind of self, kind of manifesting the, the, the life of the nation, right, mm -hmm. from the very beginning, you know. So I think it was these multiple genealogies, and one could go even further back to the 60s and 70s, world history, feminist history, ethnic history, yeah. that really question the nation as this unit of analysis and that the nation is bounded 
and that it was fixed. It existed from the very beginning, but actually to look at movements predated the nation mm -hmm. state, not the other way around. So I think historians have a unique position to bring on the study of globalization to say that it was not something that just happened recently, right, from the 90s. I, it's almost like common sense nowadays to mm -hmm. say that the world is more connected, that yeah. national boundaries somehow are less important than they used to be. Mm -hmm. So what do historians mm -hmm. uh, have to add to this conversation about this understanding of this word globalization? I think we can't really speak for the whole field, but I think um, in my own work, I do not then get rid of the nation. Like I do not do away with the mm -hmm. nation. It's simply mm -hmm. to put it in a larger universe. Right, so this is not to say the political structures, policies, uh, military forces, education, schools, these things do not produce a national identity and something mm -hmm. very real, right? Uh, that people feel, uh, that people act upon. So, so this is not a project that, I think transnational history is not a project about doing away with the nations. Mm -hmm. It's simply to admit that the, these boundaries are very unstable. Mm -hmm. National mm -hmm. boundaries are very unstable. It had to be pinned down, forced down from time to time, right? And these boundaries change over time. You know, what constitutes a nation, what constitutes a national set of values. And then the other thing is to put it in a larger universe. So it is not about decentering the nation either. Um, so it is about looking like in my case, how China was shaped by migration, shaped uh, by um, um, transnational forces, right? Circulations of money, goods, and people that are associated associated with migration. So I still think it's, it's in some ways, transnational history can bring new insights into both, migra uh, both globalization and also national history. Yeah. Yeah, that, so that's a very important point that uh, transnational history isn't trying to do away with the nation state, but add to it that there, there's different kinds of communities. Actually, and throw it into question. Throw it into right. okay. in question. But it's not then to say the nations do not matter anymore. I don't think, um, I mean, to be, that would not be a very productive thing or critical thing to, to, to position to maintain. I think mm -hmm. we, there are many examples where we can still say, you know, nations wage wars. Right, yeah. nations mm -hmm. can enforce their borders, and uh, although not perfectly, um, we live in a time where these national identities and nationalisms reassert themselves. Right, so mm -hmm. it's hard to say that um, nations do not matter because of all these flows, because 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 mobility is very gendered. It's very um, comes with a, a class dimension, a racial dimension as well. It's just to say, you know, kind of certain national identity and understanding of national history could be more pluralistic and that it would admit to how things like diasporas uh, contribute to this project and at times disrupt it. Yeah. I feel like it's a good time to pin, pin down some of these ideas to something concrete. Yeah. Could you talk about uh, how the transnational perspective made a difference in the way historians talked about diaspora and uh, immigrant communities. And maybe even say, like, what would a uh, just nationally bounded or you know, fa a national focus 
history of migration look like? Mm -hmm. And then how does a transnational mm -hmm. approach give mm -hmm. us something new mm -hmm. or different? So migration studies is nothing new in Chinese history, I, but I think my, my main observation is that it tend to be very localized because mm -hmm. most of the migrants were coming from only small areas in China in two provinces, Fujian and Guangdong. So we tended to treat it as mm -hmm. a local history that had nothing to do with the national story that they pop up from time to time to contribute to the nation, to mm -hmm. uh, um, symbolize as this great resource that the nation could materialize or weaponize. So it's, it's, they have no effect um, generally in that kind of understanding, that kind of derivative. Um, it's that the study of Chinese migration tended to be how China have shaped migrants and have mm -hmm. tried to mobilize them for support. Um, have t tended to want to capture their resources and their knowledge and their skills. So in this story, the subject still is the nation. Mm -hmm. yeah. it, but I wanted to kind of bring into the purview how, well, this idea of the diaspora being useful to the nation and the nation itself were formed together, right? Nothing was actually happening. The nation was not already formed, mm -hmm. right? So, but instead these process were, processes were intertwined and I think that um, uh, there is a need to recognize migrants and diaspora as a historical force of its own, um, instead of uh, some copycats of some something that was happening in 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 the motherland mm -hmm. or the homeland. But they have their own agendas and their own aspirations, and being embedded in different places means that they have their own idea of what the homeland is or should be doing. So these things come into conflict and tension from time to time. So so I think I, I kind of, by using diaspora studies frameworks to um, reconceptualize Chinese migration history, we see how Chinese national history actually had been shaped by the idea of migrants and their contributions to the project or how they disrupt and add it to the story. And then to recognize that themselves as a force is not something that was subsidiary of the nation and that mm. what they were doing was not just a form of nationalism but occurring across boundaries. So they were doing you know, something altogether new and semi-autonomous. Uh, they feel like, um, you know, they, they were trying to, they were uh, essential members of the nation, but at the same time, they were embedded in different local contexts. That actually means that their actions were shaped by that embeddedness. Hmm. So w one question I thought of as you were talking was, um, do you feel like you're more in conversation with other people studying diaspora? Do you feel like you're insights might be common amongst other immigrant groups? Or do you, do you feel like what your study is more within the bounds of Chinese history? There are both. I think there is definitely, um, you know, want some things that are distinct about um, Chinese cultural notions of diaspora and cultural practices around it, for example. Um, it's but it's not so unique that you cannot find parallels. So for example, the, the Chinese my traditional practice until very recently is that it was very 
very much gendered male, right? So mm. it's the men who go overseas, and then um, mothers and wives and children stay at home, right? So this mm-hmm. this ha- had gone on for centuries until very recently, what um, there's more gender equity of people going um, in and out. So so there it, it means a lot of things in China. It means the villages are then empty out of able-bodied men, mm-hmm. and then you have women heading these households were making decisions about uh, their daily lives and the, the sometimes important matters of, related to the household, right? So it's, there are certain things that are definitely distinct, right, about the Chinese migratory experience. But it's not so distinct that you cannot find parallels. That, yeah. So I was reading also a book on, um, you know, in Sicily, um, in Italy, the mm-hmm. same kind of yeah. practice. You also have women staying home. Men going coming to the United States and uh, and living in these um, one could call bachelor you know um, neighborhoods, mm-hmm. right? And and so so it's not so distinct, but there are certain cultural uh, kind of practices around it at, that that made migration look different. Um, and then, but more broadly, I think um, when we talk about diaspora, which is a kind of idea, an idea that one belongs to a distant homeland, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes not just because you came from there, but maybe you've already been many generations down, you know, in in a, in a new place, living in in a different country. But there are these uh, periodic uh, kind of you know affect or identity. Um, that that is related to nostalgia or longing or uh, feelings of displacement, marginalization. So that the unique that so that that is common to a lot of um, you know diaspora groups, right? So when you, you know kind of um, African diaspora had you know its own origins had much to do with slavery, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so so there is that kind of displacement loss. Um, that was um, also you can expand it to you know the Armenian diaspora for example. Mm. Um, so for the Chinese diaspora, there are some notions of that too. But again, the history is completely different, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So the the Chinese historical migration has something to do with indenture labor, but not all of it. That was a very small part of the general you know kind of experience of Chinese people going abroad. So there are important cultural and historical differences, and um, that Chinese configuration of diaspora had to do with the fact that, um, you know, when it comes to the 1920th centuries, that uh, they they are temporarily abroad, mm-hmm. um, and that there is always this uh, desire or some deferred um, aspiration that one would return. Whether it happens or not, mm-hmm. right? It was there on the somewhere um, on the horizon, on the back of people's mind. So that, to me, is 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 a classic example of a diaspora sentiment, like a diasporic sentiment. Um, that is classic. I think and you can find it in a lot of uh, different cultural contexts where people have um, this, you know, kind of the Jewish experience, maybe uh, occasionally. So you, you, the the Indian experience maybe in, in mm-hmm. sometimes. So what what made the the Chinese history also kind of intertwine with this 
notion of diaspora is that uh, the state was actively involved in encouraging that notion that, um, you know, when you're abroad, you are only temporarily there. Mm-hmm. And so I'm then, I then became very interested in the question of if the, the Chinese diaspora was imagined to be temporary, that, that they will always return, there was always going to be an integration um, in the end, then what was created as permanent? Mm. So that led me to the um, you know, discovery that the diaspora and nationhood were very much intertwined because mm. by, by assuming that diasporas were temporary, that, that they will always return to their homeland, then the Chinese state and Chinese intellectuals were able to create uh, ch- notions of China that are permanent, enduring. Mm. So the two have constitutive kind of um, relationship with each other. That is through assigning a group as being temporarily overseas, then the homeland was able to assert itself as permanent, enduring, mm-hmm. and should be this essential focus of migrant loyalty. And that it, it, the, it's up to the migrants when they return to assimilate and reintegrate because we have always been there, even though the Chinese states have changed many, many times throughout mm-hmm. the 20th century. Um, and its attitudes toward migration also changed drastically. So, so in this state of flux, nothing was really permanent. Mm-hmm. Everything was changing very fast. Um, and so it, it, it's that in relationship of what's designated as permanent, what's designated as temporary, mm-hmm. that intrigues me. And I think that that is the, 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 what Chinese history could bring to diaspora studies, this construction mm-hmm. of the permanent versus the temporary. And so that, that's the a question of temporality. That, that is very interesting to me that I think has been lacking in most studies of diaspora studies that tended to focus on space and place making and communities, mm-hmm. but that introduced this temporal dynamic to the conversation. So I think there's some unique con- um, contribution that Chinese history could make to diaspora studies and, um, and we're just at the beginning of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I just have a quick follow-up about that. Uh, these ideas of a permanent China that develop in uh, uh, amongst diasporic communities, is there tension when an existing diasporic community that has this established idea of a permanent China interacts with a newer wave of immigrants that are coming over for very different reasons, um, and they have their own ideas about China? Uh, in your research, have you seen any of that tension or um, this process of negotiation between these two or multiple ideas about mm-hmm. a permanent China? Definitely. Um, so a diaspora itself is very fragmented, mm-hmm. right? They come together as something, you know, kind of sharing a certain agenda on, only momentarily. So I think um, part of it had to do with these different waves of migration and different sectors of the population migrating. So, mm-hmm. uh, and different places they ended up in and being influenced by different global ideologies, of, of, mm-hmm. say, uh, communist internationalism or race or modernity or colonial uh, um, ideologies of any kind. So they, they, these groups, you know, depending on who they are, then had different notions and aspirations for China. 
right? So they did not really take the state notion of what China should be. Mm-hmm. Instead, they formulate their own in, t- in collaboration with all these you know, different groups they were in, uh, living with, or in conjunction with the different ideologies that they picked up mm-hmm. in their spaces that they lived. So what we have then is a kind of a proliferation of Chinese identities and Chinese notions of the homeland mm-hmm. that don't always articulate with each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they might be in conflict, right? So, so something I've looked at, for example, you know, kind of there's the May 4th notion of China mm-hmm. that, that is iconoclastic, uh, that is supposed to um, totally revamp China's uh, cultural uh, heritage or even, you know, eliminate it. Mm-hmm. And then somebody else who might be coming from overseas, uh, having seen, you know, kind of having been, you know, subject to a colonial hierarchy of race, mm-hmm. may rediscover Chinese heritage as something valuable. Right, and mm-hmm. modern, right? And different waves of migration, like you said, that they experience different things, right? They bring with them different things. Mm-hmm. They might say, you know, their ho- notions of homeland was really about their, their native village, mm-hmm. right? And they share um, uh, a certain uh, language or, or dialect that they, they know each other, they donate money to education mm-hmm. in their home villages rather than to state projects of modernization. Mm-hmm. So they, they could have these different ideas of what constitute their homeland, mm-hmm. right? So, so it's, it's more interesting to think about that proliferation and multitude of homelands mm-hmm. and then look at then what is China from that perspective. And, and given that a lot of these phenomenon and migrants return to China, um, there's, you know, that feedback loop is very worth studying, you know, kind mm-hmm. of how that integrate these areas together or when they, they don't seem compatible. Mm-hmm. Can, can you talk or elaborate on some of the challenges of writing good transnational histories? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it means one has to go to multiple sites, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So that we have to kind of re- reconfigure some of the funding structures. I, I don't, it's not up to the individuals to do that, but I think there's a general recognition that is increasing by the day that we need a different kind of set of tools and support to do really concrete, grounded, material kinds of transnational history, which is not just a theoretical debate, but a theoretical debate that is grounded in material conditions. So to me, that that would be the most exciting, exciting type of work to to see, you know, kind of. So so it would mean training in a different set of languages. I think the area studies mode of history have structured a way that we train students and we require them to study certain languages, or the way that uh, funding and fellowships work, mm-hmm. and jobs as well. So it's actually, I don't think I. I you know, exaggerate the, the terms of, you know, kind of really incorporating the transnational history into a discipline that that requires us to look at everything anew. Um, so it means multiple sites of research, different kinds of linguistic abilities, right, depending on which areas that you want to focus on. It also means that um, the unofficial types of sources became more important. Mm. 
because the state archives is always going to reproduce itself, the, its own permanence, its own durability as the state of government. There are ways to critically analyze archives in such a way that you notice the contradictions and the gaps, but ultimately that's only one way of how to assemble uh, the archives for a transnational historian. But one needs to be kind of more creative and nimble in the ways that we assemble different kinds of unofficial sources, mm -hmm. maybe ethnography, maybe um, types of history, you know, private collections of things that are generally left out of the kind of official archives and views of history. Maybe study of objects, visual culture, right? I think gender definitely comes in, in, in a very important way as a, a means of analysis. So it, it just means that we have to keep widening our ways to, you know, kind of train each other, train our students, and also as we grow, you know, kind of as intellectuals, we have to be open to undertaking different kinds of uh, training as well. Mm -hmm. So what might a transnational archive look like, or an ideal one? It would be an assem assembly, right? Assemblage of different archives that might be state or non-state related that generally are not brought into a single project. So um, I think it would mean, for example, discovering Chinese history in, say, the Indonesian archive, mm -hmm. right? So, so something of that sort that are kind of uncommon in the present configuration of how we write Chinese history or East Asian history to go out of the area studies mode, mm -hmm. the CJK, yeah, right, or that Taiwan is usually left out, you know, kind of not <laughs> mm -hmm. mentioned very much, or Hong Kong, totally mm -hmm. invisible, but so important when one studies shipping and banking and mm -hmm. migration. So it's about bringing into visibility not just subjects of or subalterns, but places that probably have played very important roles in linking communities and linking uh, places. So maybe Xiamen should occupy a much more important place mm -hmm. than Beijing in Chinese history. Mm -hmm. So that could happen, I think. And we just have not had enough works done on it mm -hmm. because everybody is doing Beijing or Shanghai, right? But instead, actually maybe Shanghai's surrounding region is a three provinces surrounding Shanghai, not just Shanghai itself, and not Shanghai as a Chinese city, but Shanghai functioning in a network with other port cities. Mm -hmm. So these are the hinges and hubs and knots that we should discover and discover archives that, that in places that are not heavily used, right? Mm -hmm. But uh, can be surprisingly quite useful to some projects that we study, you know, how, how lives are lived across boundaries, um, how experiences happen. So that's, I think, some of the examples that, that one, you know, there are still, still, you know, a lot of these um, possibilities. We need to make new maps, visualize yeah. the world in new ways. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So I think our area studies mode or our national mode of writing history really had to be re questioned from the ground up, right? So what, what tend to be the places that we focus on so much and that is so saturated and still people still want to do more about it? 
but actually have to look from the edges as well. And we might discover from the process they are not really the places on the edges, you know, so much, but actually mm -hmm. were very important, right? So new types of geographies, new types of chronologies that look into how things travel back and forth, right? It's not just things going from China outward. That's a, a, a kind of very old traditional mode of studying, mm. yeah. you know, movements. But how something loop back unexpectedly, look at multi-directional things, look at contingencies, and not presume the nations had been formed and uh, that it, it, you know, in the Chinese history terms, like five five thousand years of mm -hmm. kind of unbroken Chinese history and mm -hmm. identity. Um, but actually, look at you know, kind of how that that narrative was constantly disrupted. You know, yeah. Chinese history, you know, is not like that. It was broken mm -hmm. many, many times. <laughs> yeah. um, and a lot of things coming from the outside world became Chinese, and we forgot about the origins, mm -hmm. right? So it's not in this, you know, it's not just about Chinese things going out, which is like current state reincarnation of the Silk Road Project, which is about Chinese capital going out, right? Mm -hmm. But if you actually look at the history of the Silk Rose, it's much, much more polycentric. It's not dominated by one single power. Um, it's about these exchanges of religion and ideas and objects coming into China as well. Mm -hmm. So that's the kind of transnational global history that I think uh, some many people are already working on. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the Silk Road thing is... I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, do do you think there's uh, like factors or in current events or in our lifetimes that have led to the the growth of this uh, turn in history to look at a transnational perspective? Yeah, like w what factors outside of academia hmm. do you think have mm -hmm. have influenced this? Mm -hmm. um, well, I think there there is a, a you know given the China's changing place in the world it is is you know increased uh, prominence right as uh, a power in East Asia and possibly around the world as well there's a great interest in in that you know kind of how when we look at not just history um, Chinese history as something that is confined to 1920 centuries which had been the case mm -hmm for a long time that it was a, hist a history about modernity and or the lack of modernity and mm -hmm. imperialism and suddenly an expansion uh, to looking at well there were times where China was prominent a prominent uh, power so that I think it was a positive development that that we should you know kind of uh, broaden that uh, interest in history but then uh, a kind of really state-directed point of view of um, how history moves and what it means then is, is the more traveling kind. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it's, it's, I think, you know, there, there is this contention between also in a kind of broader global politics right now, what's called cosmopolitanism or globalism or mm -hmm. being globalist as something that was contaminated and mm -hmm. not authentic as opposed to something that's um, really authentic and really rooted. And um, so the, the binary construction of what's something what is authentic 
and what is uh, stationary, and some construction of what the cosmopolitan being uh, something that, that was contaminated, that was decadent. Mm. Right? It was actually a kind of a, a reconstruction of an earlier kind of a kind of rural urban divide in the, say, the 50s and 60s, mm. what some of the ch communist movements uh, in Asia try to construct uh, how you know the rural is a place where you know all the peasantry or the place where it had the most revolutionary potential, and the cities were too well connected with the outside world, and therefore it mm -hmm. is decadent, and it's uh, it had to be do, done away with, right? So mm -hmm. I think I see sometimes these uh, recurrences of binary construction and, and tensions that quite. I mean, troubling to watch, but as a historian, it, the, these are familiar tensions. Mm -hmm. uh, our last question's about your work now. So what project are you working on now? Yeah. So the new project is about the South Seas. Uh, it's called Nanyang Chinese or Nanyo Japanese. It may not mean the same thing, but it's, um, it's not quite the South China Sea, but it's about that integrated maritime zone that crosses mm. over the South China Sea, one could say, but really connects the port cities along the coast of China with port cities in Southeast Asia, and what we call mm. Southeast Asia today. So it's, I guess it's the time before area studies and the Cold War, how we divide up the world geography into, you know, kind of you have East Asia and Southeast mm. Asia, and we refer to the landmass, not really about these seas, and not really about particular points and cities, uh, but we, we really refer to is a continental mode of seeing the mo the world. Right. So I kind of want to go back to the a prehistory of that, like kind of the, how how did the South Seas become South China Seas, which has these connotations of mm. geopolitical rivalries between nation states. Right. When we right. say South China Sea, it's about you know how China, the Philippines, Vietnam, all claim to have a piece of it, mm -hmm. right? And they are not the only ones. So, so the South Seas was, I think, my hypothesis is that it had much to do with Chinese mass migration to Southeast Asia. Almost 20 million people mm -hmm. went, uh, moved there, and uh, many of them became, you know, they brought their families. Uh, it, it kind of quite. Uh, interestingly, a, a, a kind of a departure from traditional mode of migration, and they also return. So there's a lot mm -hmm. of circulation, right, um, between just because of geo geopolitical, I'm sorry, geographical proximity, and also um, all the lines of shipping and commercial flows allowed that to happen. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so from Shanghai to Xiamen to Hong Kong, then all the way to other port cities in Southeast Asia, they helped created this integrated region that uh, was given the name Nanyang or South Seas that, that was used very heavily in, starting in the early 20th century. The term mm -hmm. had existed, but then it became known as this place that Chinese can, people can go freely. Mm -hmm. And then they are newspaper writers, they are booksellers, they were journalists, uh, they are uh, teachers that fill up all those or help fill up these job opportunities in Chinese schools that are all in Southeast Asia and these main cities, traders, bankers, mm -hmm. shipping company owners, industry. So 
it's a kind of a cultural economy that I, I would like to study and, you know, kind of, and how it fell apart mm. Mm. in the 50s and 60s as decolonization and uh, anti-communist movements, other types of rivalries between new nation states emerged, including China itself, right? So there are all these new nation states happening and gaining independence in the 50s and 60s and how they dealt with this South Sea problem Mm -hmm. that you have this semi-autonomous region where people do business, teach, get educated freely, Mm -hmm. and they move freely, um, and how that became a great issue of um, problem or problem to uh, the new nation states that were rising, including China. Great. Well, um, where can uh, listeners read your work? Well, I have a new book that came out last month from Duke Press. It's called Diaspora's Homeland, Modern China in the Age of Global Migration. It's still very new, and um, I'm very excited about it. And so that is uh, one of the, I guess, the one of the most recent things. Great, great. Thank you. Oh, Thank okay. you. Great. Check out our website transasiapod.history.wisc.edu or you can find us on Twitter at transasiapod. Join us next time to learn more about Transasia and the world. Our podcast is sponsored by UW-Madison's Department of History and our podcast artwork is designed and created by Katherine Randall. <laughs>